Hey guys, welcome to the Creation Today Show. I'm your host, Eric Hovind. Today I want to have what I hope will be an incredibly good conversation that'll be helpful to you, even though it's about something that happened somewhere around 4,400 years ago. So I get it, the worldwide flood, did it really happen? Is there any evidence of it? Our goal as a ministry, by the way, Creation Today and the whole everything we do here with the Creation Today show is to help give people answers. We want to turn the things that are currently stumbling blocks in people's lives that are keeping people from coming to Christ into stepping stones, helping you realize that, wow, God really is the creator of mankind. Man did mess up. God really became the redeemer of mankind. And anybody who repents and put their trust in him, puts their trust in him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection truly can be saved. And so uh, my goal today is to be an encouragement to you and help you understand things of scripture, things from God's word, and things from God's world, the science that we see to show that it really was a worldwide flood. I got to gotta start by answering this question, why, why does this really even matter? I mean, why, why does it matter whether it was a global flood, a worldwide flood, or a local flood, as some other um, Christians claim that would call themselves creationists? They believe in creation, but they say it really wasn't a worldwide flood. It was just a local flood, or, or for that matter, the, the evolutionary worldview, which would say uh, we're, we're, there was no flood. There, there's a lot of local flooding that has happened, but nothing on a global worldwide scale. Well, I think it matters for a couple of reasons, and, and this, this really does, for me, help me understand perspective. I don't know if this will help you, but uh, I loved throwing my kids up in the air as they were little. They're a little too big to throw up in the air right now. But uh, perspective, man, as dad sees, that's what I was doing. As the kid sees, holy smokes, I'm flying. And as mama sees, oh my goodness, you're about to kill my child. That's kind of the way it looks according to the different perspectives that are out there. Perspective really does matter. Scripture does say something interesting about the flood. It's in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 3. It says, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers. Now, I don't know if you uh, have ever had the opportunity to talk to one of these people before, but we do have a lot of scoffers in the world today. And Scripture says that scoffers are going to be walking after their own lusts. The reason people scoff at the Bible is never because of science. It's always because of sin. And I get it. I've got scoffers that watch this program. I got scoffers that I engage with, that I talk to, and I enjoy the conversations. I just want you to know the reason people scoff at the Bible, according to scripture, is never because of science. It's always because of sin. And the Bible says scoffers are going to be willingly ignorant. They're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And that phrase is talking about an idea that's, that's commonly used today in, and taught today in education called uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism says the present is the key to the past. Second Peter, the book of Second Peter, Peter writing this, Peter told us this was going to be the case. This was going to actually happen. And then it says in verse 5, it says, For this they willingly are ignorant of. Now, willingly ignorant means dumb on purpose. I mean, they, they, they don't want to believe that this is true, even though they know that it is true. And then it goes on to talk about three different major events in history. Number one, it talks about the creation, how the earth was standing out of the water and in the water. Second thing it talks about is the flood, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And the third thing it talks about is the coming judgment of God, how God is going to judge this world again one day. And guys, I got to tell you, that's right where we sit today. Scoffers are willingly ignorant of the creation because if there really is a creation, that means there's a creator. They're willingly ignorant of the flood because if there really is a flood, that means God has the right to judge his creation. And he does. And they're willingly ignorant of the coming judgment of God because they want to live life however they want. They don't want somebody else imposing rules on their life, telling them what they can and cannot 
do. So the scoffers are going to be willingly ignorant of these three things. And one of them is the flood. And it's interesting that written more than almost 2000 years ago, actually, yeah, almost 2000 years ago, um, we see that the Bible says this is going to be a sign of the last day. Scoffers are going to be willingly ignorant that God really flooded the world. And why does it matter? Again, okay, so why does it matter? Because the Bible says this is going to be a sign of the end times. Scoffers are going to be willingly ignorant of the creation, the flood, and the coming judgment of God. It also matters because Scripture is very clear about this. You, you cannot give a reading through Genesis, especially Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right where the flood and after the flood, that, that uh, episode is taking place. The history is being revealed in Scripture. And walk away going, well, it, it doesn't seem like a worldwide flood. When you read the scriptures, you're going to come away with this really was a worldwide flood. So I, I think it would, be, it would be worth it to us. Even I, 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 I like to have fun on the program. I like to tell jokes. I like to have fun. And I think the best thing we can do right now, though, is go straight to scripture and say, what does scripture say about the flood? And if you go through Genesis chapter 6, it's really, really clear. The earth was corrupt before God, the Bible says. The earth was filled with violence. Uh, God looked upon the earth. Behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And then it says this. It says, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. He said, I'm going to destroy them with the ark. And he said, Noah, I want you to make an ark. I want you to build an ark out of gopher wood. And so my dad always told the joke, you know, boys, gopher wood. It's time to build an ark. And that's really what happened. He really did spend years, possibly up to 70 years, building this ark to be able to save mankind and save two of each of the kinds of animals. You go through Genesis, those uh, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, later on in chapter seven, it says, I will cause it to rain upon the earth. Tell me, do you get a local flood or worldwide flood out of this? 40 days and 40 nights and every living substance that I have made I will destroy from off the face of the earth. Does that sound like a worldwide flood or a local flood? He goes on in, in verse 17. He says, the waters increased as the flood was happening and it bare up the ark. The ark was lifted up off the ground and it was lifted above the earth. And the waters, it says, prevailed and were increasingly great upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. So obviously the ark is now floating on water. And it says, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Well, I've often wondered, how, how do you cover all the high hills with a local flood? That just, that doesn't work. You cannot cover all the high hills and it be a local uh, flood. It goes on, it says, 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Now, we'll talk about this in just a second. The mountains that it's referring to there in Genesis chapter 7 are not the same as the mountains that we have today. The mountains we have today have come up and risen up even higher than, I believe, the pre-flood mountains existed. We've got them much higher today than they were at that point in time. And then it says, all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of the beast and of the creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man. This is not talking about a local, you know, little geologic area that Noah lived in. It's talking about across the face of the whole earth. When God created the heaven and the earth, he created the whole earth. And then it says, in all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, all that was in dry land died. This is not just talking about the dry land where Noah lived. It's talking about all the dry land, anywhere there was life on land, those animals died. You get to verse 23 and it says, and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping thing and the fowl of heaven, they were destroyed from the earth and Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. So when you read scripture, you gotta ask the question, does scripture describe a literal 
global flood? And I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. You can't simply read Genesis 6 and 7 and even going into 8 and come away with the idea that this was only a little bitty section of the earth. This is only where, where Noah and his family or where humanity existed at this time. This is talking about a global worldwide event. Now, let me back up and talk about why this is even an issue today. Why is it an issue that, um, that we need to figure out, was this a global or a local flood? Here's why. Because geology today has been written, has been done in the framework of an old earth worldview. And I'll show you how that happened. Back in um, uh, 1795, a guy named James Hutton wrote a book called Theory of the Earth. And in his book, Theory of the Earth, um, he claimed maybe the earth is a lot older than people currently believed that it was. Because for quite a while, people basically had a biblical understanding. There were some views that the earth might be old, you know, pre-1795, going all the way back to the Greeks and things like that. But for the most part, a lot of people did have a basic biblical understanding of the history of life on earth, of the history of the creation of the world about 6,000 years ago. James Hutton comes along and he says, maybe the earth is a whole lot older than people think that it is. And in his book, Theory of the Earth, he makes that claim. Well, a guy that read James Hutton's book, Theory of the Earth, believed it and actually took it to the next level was a guy named Sir Charles Lyell. Charles Lyell wrote a book called Principles of Geology. And in his book, Principles of Geology, written in 1830, he, he basically makes fun of the Bible. Uh, and he's also, he, he, he quotes in there, I'm trying to, trying to rescue science from Moses. I'm trying to get science out of the hands of Moses because, and this is interesting, all of science up until this point had been done from a biblical context, from a biblical worldview. Matter of fact, every branch of science discovered was discovered by people wanting to learn more about God. So they did that by looking at his world and learning more about God's world to learn more about the God of this world. So all of chemistry, all of biology, all the sciences we have today were developed in the womb of a Christian worldview. I don't have time to go into that right now. We need to do a show on that. The, the uh, scientists of the past, what did they believe? Because the Christian worldview is what gave birth to the modern scientific movement. It's what helped, it's what allowed us to, to search out things, even using the scientific method. Well, Sir Charles Lyell is one of the key guys that came up with what we now call the geologic column. Now remember, this is back in the 1820s and 1830s, okay? His book written in 1830. And, and he helped develop this, this concept that all the layers to the earth that we have today were not the result of the flood, which is what the Bible declared. Well, I guess it didn't declare that the layers, but it declared a flood happened. And if the flood happened, we would expect to see all these layers of sediment. They're called sedimentary layers, laid down by water. Flood is water, sedimentary, laid down by water. Flood, water, sedimentary, get it? Okay, so all these sedimentary layers that we now call the geologic column could be explained by the flood. Sir Charles Lyell comes along and says, no, I don't think the flood is what explained these. I think, I think that Principles of Geology book is right. I think James Hutton is right. I think maybe the earth is very old, and if the earth is very old, maybe these layers have slowly accumulated over millions and millions of years. And he took the old earth idea that James Hutton came up with and applied it to geology. And really, geology, modern geology, was birthed in the womb of an old earth worldview. And that's important, okay? You got to understand, where did the mindset come from to, to teach and to think and to study geology? Geology really came out of an old earth perspective because of James Hutton and then Charles, Charles Lyell adopting this. And then it wasn't long later that you had Darwin reading Lyell's book, which basically made fun of the Bible. I mean, Darwin was just out of school to be a preacher, goes on the HMS Beagle around the world, and he's, he's studying the, the, the Bible, but he's also studying Charles Lyell, who's making fun of the Bible. And he thinks, wow, if the earth is old, and if all these layers that we see around the world today, I mean, those are obvious, they exist, 
if all those layers were laid down slowly, well, then maybe, maybe this is what accounts for the diversity of life. Maybe animals change from one kind of animal to a different kind of animal. And when he saw what we often refer to as microevolution, it was actually a Russian atheist um, uh, scientist that coined that term micro and then macro big evolution. Darwin observed microevolution, the finch beaks changing from a small, thin, uh, depending on their diet, to a thick um, uh, and bigger beak. And he saw these changes in finches and he went, wow, maybe mutations is what allows for animals to change into different kinds of animals. And then Darwin ends up coming along and really popularizing an idea that already existed, but popularized the idea of evolution. And I do think it's interesting that Peter, once again, go back to Peter. He said the scoffers are going to be ignorant of three things. They're going to be ignorant of the creation. They're going to be ignorant of the flood. And they're going to be ignorant of the coming judgment of God. And that's exactly what happened. James Hutton came along in, in 1795 and really took out creation and said, well, if God didn't create the world, and you can take the dates that are given to us in Scripture, add them up, see about how old the earth is. The Bible doesn't say God created the earth you know, at, in 4004 B.C., but it does tell us Adam lived 130 years and began a son and called his name Seth. Seth lived 105 years and had Enos. And it does give all these dates to us in the Bible that we can add up to see about how old the earth is. And so we've got from, from creation to Abraham about 2,000 years, from Abraham to the, uh, or to the flood, uh, no, to Abraham, Abraham to Christ about 2,000 years, and then Christ to today about 2,000 years. James Hutton comes along and says, well, if the earth is old, we can do away with creation. That creation account didn't happen about 6,000 years ago. Then Sir Charles Lyell comes along and says, well, I think the layers to the earth aren't the result of the flood. I think the results of, they are the results of millions of years. Then Darwin comes along and says, hey, you know what? I, I, think, that, I think that maybe we evolved and this actually got rid of the very need for a creator. We weren't made in the image of God. And if we're not made in the image of God, we can't be held accountable to God. And it got rid of the idea of a judgment day coming soon. So here we have the last days. People are going to be ignorant of the creation, the flood, and the coming judgment of God. And that's exactly what we see happening since 1795, 1830, and then 1859 with Charles Darwin's book. So that begs the question, is the geologic column evidence for the global flood, or is it evidence for the billions and billions of years of time? I've often wondered, if there was a worldwide flood, well, what would the evidence look like? What would the evidence be of a, of a planet, an entire planet that's been flooded, been covered by water, and then the water, ocean basin sank down and the water ran off? You would see massive erosion features just like this. Here's the problem. This erosion feature is not on planet Earth. Now, planet Earth has massive erosion features just like this. This erosion feature, which no scientist disagrees with, that is water erosion. That looks like water eroded something right there. That erosion feature is on the planet Mars. Mars, a place where we don't see any evidence of liquid water. Could it be under the surface? Possibly, they think it might be. But is there actual water up there on Mars that we know of? Not necessarily. But we have these huge features. I mean, we're talking about erosional events on Mars that would dwarf the Grand Canyon. I mean, it would make the Grand Canyon look tiny compared to the erosion features on Mars. So obviously water eroded something on Mars at some point in the past. Well, that, that begs the question, if this is evidence for huge, massive erosion on Mars, what do we do with all the evidence we see here on planet Earth? of huge, massive erosion. When I go to the Grand Canyon, I don't see evidence of millions of years. There's way too much evidence against the idea that the Colorado River formed the Grand Canyon over millions of years. I see incredible evidence of the worldwide flood, a catastrophic event. I don't know if you realize this, um, Grand Canyon, when you're standing on top of Grand Canyon and looking down inside of it, by the way, I'd love for you guys to go with me. I go every year to the Grand Canyon. I'll tell you about that in a minute. When you're standing on top of the Grand Canyon and looking down inside, it is interesting that on top of where you are standing, there used to be another mile of sediment on top of the Grand Canyon. 
That mile of sediment's been removed for tens of thousands of square miles. We'll talk about that in just a second. But we see these massive erosion features all over planet Earth. Why can't we come to the conclusion? Why isn't it scientifically viable to conclude it looks like a worldwide flood? So what evidence would we see? Well, if there was worldwide evidence for the worldwide flood, we should see fossil sea creatures on the highest mountains. We should see rapid burial of animals and plants. I mean, so fast, they don't have time to rot. They don't have to have time to finish their meal. They, they could get buried in, right in the middle of eating something. We should see, if there was evidence for the flood, we should see rapid deposit, rapidly deposited sediment layers, layers that were laid down very quickly, one after another, no time for erosion in between. We should see sediments that have been transported over long distances, where it's transported from one part of the globe to a whole other part of the globe. And we shouldn't see any erosion between these layers because there was no time gap between them. And guys, that's exactly what we see today. There are fossil seashells on top of the highest mountains. I did a little video clip about the fact that some people say you can't have uh, a flood go above the highest mountains. This is a picture of Mount Everest. It's interesting that, that you see you see seashells, sea life on top of Mount Everest. Well, the problem with that is according to an evolutionary, according to an old earth worldview, Mount Everest, the top of it used to be down at sea level and slowly it rose up over millions of years to be where it's at today. So the reason you have sea life on top of Mount Everest is because it was at sea level and it rose up over millions of years to be at the height that it is today. Here's the problem. The current erosion rates at the rate at which the continents are eroding away into the oceans, you would never be able to get sea life slowly uh, going up in mountain form formations you would never be able to get it to stay there. It would be eroded off the top of those mountains and eroded back down to sea level before that mountain had time to get up. The current estimates, the current erosion rates would, um, would erode away all the continents in 14 million years. You got 14 million years. Yet you have rock and sea life that they claim is older than 14 million years old on top of mountains like Mount Everest. It just doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit the science that we look at today. I, I did a debate. One of the debates I did was with uh, a guy named Bernie. And uh, Bernie was in Portland, Oregon, uh, Portland State University. Um, and Bernie did a video afterwards with his son. He had a sixth grade son that was there at the debate. And the video, he had his son. He told his son this argument. His son repeated the argument on camera. He said, hey, Noah, uh, he couldn't have have built the ark because the Bible says the ark went above the highest mountains and Mount Everest is 28,000 feet and they were up there for, you know, months and months and months and you can't stay that high uh, on, you know, that, that you can't stay in an atmosphere that thin about that far above sea level without oxygen. So Noah would have needed oxygen on board the ark. I go, huh, I happen to be in Jackson Hole, Wyoming after I saw this video. So I went up on top of one of the mountains and I shared this. Check it out. Hey guys, Eric Coven here with Creation Today answering the question, did Noah need oxygen on the ark? We are 9,000 feet above sea level, looking out over an absolutely beautiful view of the mountains and the valley in between in Jackson. Let me tell you the question that skeptics and sometimes even thinking Christians ask. They say, could Noah have needed oxygen on the ark? Because the Bible says very clearly that the water went 15 cubits above the highest mountain. Well, Mount Everest is five and a half miles above sea level. So surely if Noah and his family were on the ark, they would have needed oxygen to survive. Well, this question has two built-in assumptions that I think it's important to point out. Assumption number one is that all the mountains, including Mount Everest, existed when Noah got on the ark. 
And I just don't believe that's exactly what happened. I believe as Psalms chapter 104 tells us that during the flood, the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down. As plate tectonics were taking place, the thin spots of the earth's crust sank down and other spots as they hit together bulged up to form the mountain ridges that we have today. So I don't believe mountains like Mount Everest existed before the flood. I do though believe that they existed from the time of the flood on. Think about it, today secularists teach us that these mountains formed over millions of years. This though is quite impossible. You take some of the tallest mountains in the world, including Mount Everest or the Grand Tetons, guess what you find on the tops of the mountains? Sea life, sea creatures, seashells, clams, mollusks. These things are discovered fossilized in the closed position. If those mountains had formed over millions of years, just the erosion that would have taken place would have eroded any sea life from when it was down at sea level, any of that away, and we shouldn't see it on top of the mountains today. This is excellent evidence that those mountains formed very quickly at the time of the flood. They didn't take millions of years to form. Second basic assumption. You're assuming that when Noah was on the ark and he was above the highest mountain, that the air was really thin up there. But that's a wrong assumption. Noah's ark was floating on water. Wherever Noah was at, however much water there was on the earth, he was always at sea level. He never went five and a half miles up into the atmosphere. He was floating right on the water. So wherever the water went for the global flood, that was the new sea level. So no, Noah did not need oxygen on the ark. The mountains didn't exist before the flood the way they do today. And wherever he went in that ark was sea level. I wanna invite you to learn more at creationtoday.org. So just a fun video, by the way, I love skiing. I love going out there at Jackson Hole Bible College kids. If, you, if you're not sure what to do next, uh, my daughter is, is going to Jackson Hole Bible College this next year. Incredible place, jhbc.edu. JacksonHoleBibleCollege.edu, jhbc.edu, would love for you to be there. So the bottom line is though, what is the truth about the geologic column? And why is that so important to us today? Well, again, the Bible says in the last days, scoffers are going to come and they're gonna be willingly ignorant of the flood. So it's fulfilling Bible prophecy and it makes a big difference because we have to ask, did the, did the flood, did, did the Bible get it right? Did the flood create the geologic column or is the geologic column evidence of the millions and billions of years? So there's a lot at stake here. When you look in the textbooks, they are obviously teaching from an evolutionary perspective. They have, they, they're not, they're not um, unbiased. They're very, very biased in their old earth worldviews and they're indoctrinating about 150 million kids every year with this worldview. But if you get a textbook and you, you look up, for example, the Grand Canyon, it'll say the Colorado River has cut through layer upon layer of rock over millions of years. Now, it is a fact that the Grand Canyon exists, but how do we interpret how that Grand Canyon got there? Now there's an evolutionist interpretation and a creationist interpretation. The evolutionist says it formed very slowly with a little bit of water and a whole lot of time. The creationist says it formed very quickly with lots of water and a little bit of time. Here's another fact. The earth has layers of sedimentary rock. Once again, we got to interpret this. That's the data. The data is there are layers on the earth. Not questioning that. I don't know of anybody who would. But how did those layers get there? Did the layers form slowly over millions of years? Or do those layers form very, very quickly and they're from the time of the flood? One fact, two different interpretations of the fact. My beef, my problem is that evolutionists are often erasing the line between their interpretation of the fact and the actual fact. They're making it seem like what they believe about the fact is also part of the fact. Here it is in the textbook. The Colorado River has cut through layer upon layer of rock over millions of years. Hold it. That's an interpretation. That's not actually factual. That's not part of the fact. And I can prove they're wrong, by the way. If you built a, a dam across the Grand Canyon, a huge lake would form behind it. Uh, and I know there's a couple different creationist interpretations of this. I go right now with the breach dam theory. I think this makes a lot of sense that, that there was a huge lake behind the Kaibab Plateau that actually breached and the, the Grand Canyon began eroding from the south side backwards as, it, uh, as the lake drained out once the, 
once it reached the top. By the way, it couldn't have been the Colorado, Colorado River. We know that because the Colorado River enters Grand Canyon at 2,800 feet above sea level. By the time it goes out the bottom on the other side, it's at 1,800 feet above sea level. Well, the top of Grand Canyon is around 7,000 feet above sea level. How can you have a river that starts at 2,800 feet above sea level, carve out a canyon, the top of which is 7,000 feet above sea level? That doesn't make sense. It doesn't work, okay? I got some points that we could consider here. The top is higher than the bottom. The river runs through the bottom. The top of the canyon is higher than where the start of the river is. Rivers don't flow uphill, guys. There's also no delta. The Grand Canyon is missing 900 cubic miles of dirt. One mile by one mile by one mile. 900 of those are gone. And we don't see it right there at the end of the Colorado River at the end of the Grand Canyon. It's all the way down in Mexico and out in the ocean. It's not actually right there. So no, we don't, we, there's no delta for this thing. Um, that river, there's no way that river actually made that canyon, okay? That's impossible. So the snow line tells the story. This textbook says that cut through layer upon layer of rock over millions of years. That's simply not true. They're still teaching the same thing today. By the way, we do a tour every year of the Grand Canyon. And I, I know we got three spots left this year. It would be awesome to have you go with me. Just go to creationtoday.org slash Grand Canyon. A couple of years ago, I was there with Tony, who I see on here. How you doing, buddy? I was with Tony and some guys from Living Waters, and uh, we ended up uh, creating a documentary of the Grand Canyon. It's called Scarred Earth. Let me show you this little video clip. You got the Grand Canyon behind you. How do you think the Grand Canyon formed? Uh... How do you think the Grand Canyon formed? From the river. Uh, I have no idea. Humans destroyed everything. Maybe some miracle. The prehistoric, uh, what are they? <laughs> Dinosaurs? I have no idea, actually, man. It's one of the seven natural wonders of the world. It's visited by more than six million people every year, and it can be seen from space. Today, we're going on a journey of discovery. How did the canyon form? And what does it tell us about the past, the present, and the future? The answers could change your life. Finally, a little documentary that gives the truth about the Grand Canyon. I, I'd encourage you to grab a DVD of that and send it to a friend or just come down the Grand Canyon with me. I'm telling you, we have a great time on these tours. Uh, they are a blast. And I think we're going right towards the end of June. So June like 20th, 18th, 1920, somewhere in there. I don't know. They hand me the ticket and I leave. That's how it works for me. Guys, it really was a global flood and the evidence is all over the world. A couple of years ago, I went to Scott's Bluff, Nebraska. It's a landmark because of a trading post that used to be there. And this was on the path for the people heading out west. So if you wanted to go explore and you know make a name for yourself or get land and you didn't hopefully die on the way, you went right through Scott's Bluff, Nebraska. It is absolutely beautiful, this passageway. These bluffs, though, are all around there. And it's these, um, these bluffs and these buttes, these, these islands of land that are sticking up uh, in the middle of a plain that's been completely eroded. They've got a little visitor center here, and uh, it was kind of cool getting to see their map of the elevation of, of Scott's Bluff there in Nebraska, and actually looking and seeing what actually took place. Now, the evolutionist interpretation of this, if you go there, you read the signs, it says, the plains were built up by the deposits of silt, sand, and gravel as it washed down the river 30 to 40 million years ago from the uplands to the west. Winds blew ash and dust from volcanoes to the far west, probably from what is now the Rocky Mountain region. So they're saying, came, this sediment came from a long ways away. Remember, that was one of the evidences that we would see of the worldwide flood, sediments from a long ways away. Anyway, they say it settled. And then for some reason, it, it, for some reason, it began eroding away and eroded out the plains. Well, I had to do a video while I was there too, explaining what really happened here at Scott's Bluff. Check this out. Hey guys, Eric Coven here with creationtoday.org. I'm standing on Scott's Bluff. It's a beautiful overlook. You can actually see several states from up here. It's absolutely incredible. Here's my only problem is 
around here, they're telling everybody that this is millions of years old. The, the dirt down there in the bottom, they say, is about 31 million years old. The dirt up here is around 20 million years old. It's been eroding uh, away for about 5 million years. And I just can't buy that because when I look all the way across, you can still see the, uh, the same sediment over there that we're standing on here. This is, this is great evidence in, of the worldwide flood that took place because all the sediment that is now gone is totally gone. We do not find it today. We cannot see that sediment today. Great evidence of the worldwide flood. Guys, they're trying to claim that rivers eroded all that space between Scott's Bluff and the, and the cliffs really far away. That had to be a massive amount of water. It had to be a massive flood that went through there. I told you, you'd find animals that are buried mid-lunch. If you, if you look up on Google, fish eating other fish, fossilized, you'll get tons of results. These things are found all over the world. All around the world, we have evidence of a massive flood happening and things happening very quickly. Entire schools of fish getting buried. Guys, this happens under catastrophic events, not normal events. Normal events, something gets buried and then something comes along and eats it, it decays. You have to get buried by a massive amount of dirt and mud in order to actually get fossilized. Uh, the fact that we have fossils today is evidence of the worldwide flood. I'll never forget, I need to find this clip. It's on uh, uh, Nature uh, Discovery Channel, Nature National, I forget which one it was, but one of the shows, they have this scientist and he go, walks up on a cow that had died and the leg is kind of separated from the cow. It's already started to rot away. And it's laying there next to kind of a river and he goes, this is the beginning of a fossil. I'm like, you're lying to people right now. That's not the beginning of a fossil. If it's laying on land, not buried, it's not gonna fossilize. It just doesn't happen that way. Fossils form when things are rapidly buried. By the way, our friends over at ICR, Institute for Creation Research, if you just go there and type in worldwide evidence of the worldwide flood, they have article after article after article after article after article. I mean, dozens of articles going through saying, here's one from this area of the world. Here's one from that area of the world. Here's one from this area of the world. The evidence is all over the place. I had a conversation a couple months ago with, um, with a, a, an individual that I, I love him. I truly do, I love him. Um, his name is Hugh Ross. And I had a conversation with Hugh Ross and it was specifically on the age of the earth. And the idea of the flood happened to come up. By the way, I'd really, I'd love it if you'd go watch that. I feel like it was a incredible two and a half hour conversation that we got to have. And um, my, my big problem with, with people that are claiming any individual that would claim it's a local flood is, well, that Noah's flood wasn't worldwide, that it's local, is I'm going, well, now what you're doing is you're taking a modern scientific idea and putting that science on top of scripture and viewing scripture through a modern scientific idea because, hey, most of the geologists don't believe in the worldwide flood. Well, that's because most of the geologists have been trained in the womb of an old earth perspective. So they're not allowed to believe in a worldwide flood. It's not that they that they that some of them don't it's that they're not allowed to because that would do away with the millions of years that would say the geologic column formed during the time of the flood well i brought up in that conversation uh, a 24-hour lecture series that i watched called what scientists know it's by uh, dr stephen goldblum gold goldman by dr stephen goldman and in this lecture series i was kind of blown away by it it's really really good he said 90% of what scientists believed was true in the 1700s was no longer true by the 1800s. Then he said, in the 1800s, 90% of what scientists believed was true in the 1800s was no longer believed as truth in the 1900s. Science has a long history of being completely wrong. Know of any modern day examples? Yes, I think you can guess there's a couple. So why would I interpret scripture through modern science? Now, some people will say, hey, that is not what Dr. Ross is doing. That's not what old earth creationists are doing. They're not interpreting scripture through modern science. Yes, they are. Here it is straight from the horse's mouth. 
if science tomorrow comes out, all the scientists, everybody, they go, guess what, guys? We were wrong. It's a young earth. And all the scientists agree with that. Would that change your interpretation of scripture? It definitely would. It definitely would. 100%. That's would. the problem. That's exactly that. And that's what we were saying at the beginning. Because you are saying, if the scientists say this, I'm, I'm, here's about the book of nature. It's 14.7, uh, 13.79 billion years old, plus or minus 0.04 for the universe, and 4.5662 billion years old for the age of the earth, plus or minus 0.001. And if they change, that will change your interpretation of scripture. That is my point. That's the problem. Again, I encourage you to go watch the full conversation because that is the issue. Is scripture the authority over science or is science and our current scientific understandings the authority over scripture? All of geology was birthed in an old earth worldview and that is being put on top of scripture. That is the problem. That's the only reason to say that it would be a local flood. We looked at the scriptures. Scripture is clear. Everything, all life, everything died. All the high hills were covered. It had to be a global, a worldwide flood. So when we look at the creationist worldview, it does make sense. God really did judge the world with a flood. So was it local or was it global? It had to be global. Otherwise, how do you have the water covering the highest mountains by 15 cubits? That just doesn't make sense if this is a local flood. By the way, at the Grand Canyon, it is interesting. You do see the Grand Staircase. I was uh, hinting at this earlier. Uh, you can go on an entire Grand Staircase tour with Russ Miller, uh, Creation, Evolution, and Science Ministries, or with our friends at Canyon Ministries, uh, Nate Loper over there, incredible, incredible organization. They'll take you on a tour and show you all these things. It really is incredible. This is the Grand Canyon right here. So if you're at the Grand Canyon, this is the little bitty groove in the ground that you're looking at. Obviously, it's a massive groove, okay, over a mile deep. But as you head north, you actually get to the, the Vermilion Cliffs. We raft through the Vermilion Cliffs. 2,000 foot of sediment that is completely gone. Now, how do we know that this sediment right here, how do we know that this sediment used to cover where Grand Canyon currently is? Because at both entrances to the Grand Canyon, the uh, east entrance and the south entrance, there are two buttes, one called Cedar Butte, one called Red Butte. I'm sorry, I should have put a picture in here. Go watch the movie, you'll see it two buttes, and it's the same sediment, the same dirt that you find all the way up here at the Vermilion Cliffs. They're 900 feet tall. All around them, the sediment's been removed, but there's these two remnants of that same sediment showing that that dirt used to cover this entire area. So this dirt right here, the Vermilion Cliffs, used to cover all of this area. That's 2,000 feet. Then you got the White Cliffs. You go north, you got the Gray Cliffs. You go north, you got the Pink Cliffs. And you see that there used to be all these layers of sediment used to cover all the way over the Grand Canyon. You add these up and you've got almost two miles of sediment that had covered that entire landmass. We don't need to try to figure out or worry about the 900 cubic miles from the Grand Canyon of that sediment that's gone. Like, where did it go? We see that down in, in like I said, in Mexico and in the Pacific Ocean. We need to be trying to figure out, well, what about this one mile of strata that's been removed for tens of thousands of square miles. That's evidence of a global, a worldwide flood. That doesn't happen. You don't remove 130,000 cubic miles of sediment with a local flood. Let me, let me say that again. I want you to get this. 130,000 cubic sediments, cubic miles of sediment. So one mile by one mile by one mile, 130,000 thousand of those are gone. Grand Canyon, only 900. This missing layer of strata, 130,000 cubic miles of dirt has been removed. Guys, it had to be a worldwide flood. I'd say the Grand Canyon, the Grand Staircase, all over, it's obviously evidence of the worldwide flood. Like I said, you got to go. Some people say, no, 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 that took millions of years. Guys, 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 I'm telling you, I'm telling you. When we see massive erosion features, it's not evidence 
of a long period of time. Typically, it's evidence of a whole lot of water. Pensacola had a flood several summers ago in which it rained 27 inches in 24 hours. It was devastating Pensacola. I went out after the, the, the rain the next morning. I went out and I began exploring Pensacola, Florida. And you realized, man, there is massive, massive erosion that took place overnight, literally within just a couple of hours. Uh, this uh, created all kinds of problems here in Pensacola. Um, well, I went out afterwards and I asked people, what do you think caused all this erosion? Do you think it was how much time or do you think it was the amount of water? I don't have time to play the full clip, but here's the beginning of it. Check this out. Hey guys, Eric Hoven here. We've been going around interviewing people from Piedmont Avenue in Pensacola, Florida, where there's been, as you can see, quite a bit of destruction that has taken place because of the amount of water. We received in the last 24 hours, 27 inches of water, of rain came down. That coupled with a main line bursting has caused some enormous, enormous erosion features. Now, of the people that we interviewed, we asked them, what do you think caused all this erosion? Do you think it was a lot of time or a lot of water? Here's what they said. What do you think caused all this? Was it the amount of time or the amount of water? The amount of water because it rained so long. What do you think caused all the disaster? Was it the amount of time or the amount of water? Well, this is obviously water. It's a powerful force. Water. 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 The amount of water. You guys are all sure on that. This is unanimous? Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's the water. I mean, just the impact that it came through with. Um, a lot of water in a short amount of time just flowing fastly, just eroded everything. Now, I got a scientific question for you. What do you think caused all the erosion that's taking place behind you? Do you think it was the amount of time or the amount of water? What's the amount of water. What do you think? Time. Time? How long did this take to erode away? How long did that take? Like, the, when the water came or? Yeah. Like 15, 30 minutes, like an hour. Oh, 15 or 30 minutes. So I'm gonna ask you again, what do you think took, what do you think really caused all this erosion? Was the amount of time or the amount of water that caused it? The water. I think it was the amount of water. Yeah, we have never, we've so. never seen this much water ever. I don't have time to show you the rest of that, but it's just, it's several more minutes of people after pe person after person after person saying, obviously this is an amount of time amount of water it's not the amount of time guys when we see massive erosion around the world which we do see it's not because of lots of time it's because of a lot of water that's the key um there's another evidence in in texas uh the uh, canyon lake dam is that the name of it uh, uh was about to be breached and um in order to preserve the dam they they released a huge amount of water 200 times the normal volume of water they released over here on an emergency spillway to lower the lake level. The lake was two feet from the top of the dam. And if, if you know anything about um, um, engineering or dams, things like that, if a water ever actually breaches a dam, it is complete destruction downstream. I mean, it is really, really bad. Well, they released this massive amount of water. Here you can see some video footage of it massive amount of water around the side of the dam just to lower the lake level as fast as possible. Whenever the water went down after three days, it was only three days, in three days a huge canyon had formed. The canyon that formed was um, three miles long, I believe, uh, three kilometers, 1.2 miles long, uh, several miles long, they, they wrote about it in the paper actually, and 21 feet deep. Here's what they said, in a remarkable demonstration of the power of raging waters, the flood excavated a 2.2 kilometer long, that's it, about a mile and a half, uh, or a mile of, 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 of sediment, one mile, seven meters deep, about 21 foot deep in the bedrock. I mean, this is in solid rock and it formed in just three days. That massive amount of erosion didn't take a long period of time. It happened because of the amount of water. They said in the article, they said, our traditional view of deep river canyons, such as the Grand Canyon, is that they carved out slowly as the regular flow and occasionally moderate rushing of rivers erodes rock over periods of millions of years. Such is not always the case. I'll say, why, why is it the case? Why can't we conclude from this? It looks like it takes massive amounts of water to cause the massive amounts of erosion that we see today. They're going to be giving tours of this in the next couple of years and telling kids, Boys and girls, this took millions of years to form. <laughs> That's what they're doing at the Grand Canyon. They're teaching kids at the Grand Canyon. Hey guys, this took millions of years to form. 
when it absolutely did not. It's evidence of a massive amount of water, not a massive amount of time. One more thing, and I know I'm getting low on time here. Um, I got to do my first rafting experience this last summer all the way through the Colorado River, or through the Grand Canyon, down the Colorado River. So historically, if you can see it on here, historically, I start right up here, just off the screen, at uh, the, the base of the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, and we actually raft all the way down. We raft around Horseshoe Bend, which is absolutely incredible. You see the people standing up here on top. And I mean, they look like ants. And you're down there in the river going through. We go through Horseshoe Bend, come all the way down here at the end of the Vermilion Cliffs, which is what you see right here. And we get out at a place called Lee's Ferry right there. If you guys can see my mouse, that's, that's where we get out right there. Well, this summer, I had the opportunity, thanks to our friends at Answers in Genesis and thanks to the generous sponsors that helped them put on this trip. By the way, thank you, thank you, thank you. We got to go all the way down the Colorado River, a 10-day exploration trip down the Colorado River. And I got to go with guys like Dr. Andrew Schnelling, Dr. Jeremy Lyons, Dr. John Whitmore, and Dr. Terry Mortensen. And they explained young earth geology while going down through the Grand Canyon. It was epic. I mean, it was incredible. 10 days, no cell phone, no internet, 28 guys talking about Jesus, rafting down some of the biggest rapids in the world. Truly amazing. Um, while we were going down the Colorado River, while we're going down the Colorado River, we stopped at multiple places because as the river goes downhill, the ground around you is going uphill. You actually go deeper and deeper into the sediment as you go down the Colorado River. So it's a great place to study geology. Well, we're stopping at these different places and one place after another after another, they're giving evidence showing, look, the Colorado River could not have formed this canyon. This canyon had to be formed by a massive amount of water could not have been from the Colorado River over millions of years. Examples, it's only the bottom 20 to 30 feet of the canyon that's carved off, that's, uh, that's been eroded by water and smooth. Everything else above it is jagged, evidence of fast erosion, very quick erosion. It, it had to happen very quickly. They show us places um, where there is, the most incredible thing to me, places where there are bent layers of rock. I did a whole show on this. Um, it should be on our website. If you go into learn and click on webinars, free webinars, you can watch the first half of it with Dr. Andrew Schnelling and myself talking about it. That's impossible. Rocks don't bend. But you go down through the Grand Canyon and you see a couple different places, four places where all one mile of strata, an entire mile of strata has been bent at a 90 degree angle like this. Rocks don't bend. People say, oh, well, they would have gotten heated up, you know, and under once it's heated up, it kind of melts, and then you can bend the rock. But that changes the structure of the molecular structure of the rock. It, it, can't, it can't just change and bend, uh, bend without changing the molecular structure of the rock. And Dr. Schnelling, as he talks about on that show from Answers in Genesis, Dr. Schnelling actually has studied this, and he's showing us, guys, this is incredible evidence of a worldwide flood. These layers, all one mile of strata, and we went down through them all, the Kaibab, the Toro Weep, the Coconino, the Hermit, the, the Supai Group, the Red Wall uh, Formation, the Muav, the Bright Angel, and then you get down to the, uh, the un Great Unconformity down there, all the way down to the Grand Canyon Supergroup, the Depeats and the Grand Canyon Supergroup. Right there, you have all of these layers that according to the Evolution Worldview, actually the dates are right there on there. According to the Evolution Worldview, the Bright Angel is 515 million years old. The top is only 270 million years old. So there's no way, according to the Evolution Worldview, according to an Old Earth Worldview, according to there was a local flood, not a global flood worldview, no way to say that those layers um, all bent at the same time and were all soft at the same time. This layer down here, 515 million years old, it would be hard as rock way before we get up here to the top, 270 million years old. It would be stone. There's no way it could still be soft sediment. But the only way to bend them is if they're all soft sediment, if they were laid down at relatively the same time. So one of the places we stopped was Monument Fold. And I got to tell you, Dr. John, Dr. Schnelling, unbelievable presentations here, guys. You did incredible. I should have released the video of what you guys did here. Haven't done that yet, sorry. Um, I, I did one video. Uh, I'll show you the video that I did uh, without Dr. Schnelling uh, here. Uh, check this out.
Oh man, guys, I feel blessed beyond measure. Check this out. I'm here at Monument Fold. This is where Dr. Schnelling and other geologists, uh, Dr. John, have been doing their research. Uh, and the research is coming back to show these, all of these layers are folded just in the same spot here. And uh, from the tapetes up above it, the Bright Angel, uh, the Muav, they're all folded. And he is demonstrating that that fold took place while they were all soft sediment, which means there was no millions of years involved in laying down these rocks. And this is right here. This is a death blow to the evolution worldview and to the old earth worldview. It's incredible. I just feel I, I, it's, it's epic. It's monumental to be at a place like this. Unbelievable. It truly did feel epic because the scientific research is being done right now. Dr. Schnelling has already released his first of several different papers on this. And it's like, we're finally, we're finally rescuing geology from an old earth perspective because geologists for years have been studying in the wrong framework. They've been looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for the millions of years rather than asking, did the millions of years actually happen? So they have, a, they, have a, they have a bias that's gone into all their studies. And now, today, we have science that's being done in a young earth framework. So for all of those of you out there that support Answers in Genesis, thank you for giving them the, what they need to be able to do this kind of research, giving them the funds to do this, because the government doesn't give grants to go research young earth creation, okay? It ain't happening. Um, but I really, and ICR, Institute for Creation Research, Dr. Tom Clary. Oh man, I need to release that. I did a great show with him. We got to put that out there at some point too. Um, uh, anyway, more research being done from the young earth perspective. Guys, it was a global flood. We don't find these bent rock layers only at the Grand Canyon. We find these bent rock layers all over the globe. And when you bend that much dirt, that much sediment at a 90 degree angle, it's evidence those layers had to be laid down at the exact same time. They're not millions of years different in age. If you want to check out Dr. Schnelling's article on this, uh, go to AnswersInGenesis.org and just do uh, research. Here's the title of it, Creation Scientist's Groundbreaking Research at the Grand Canyon Published. Uh, and this was tough because they, they weren't going to let them into the Grand Canyon to actually do their research, literally to gather some rocks. They weren't going to let them do that. Uh, because they had a young earth, it came out in a lawsuit. They had to sue to go, be able to go do it. It came out in a lawsuit. They didn't want them to do it because they were coming from a young earth perspective. Now you tell me if that's not people trying to control the narrative of science rather than discover the truth of what science is, I don't know what is. They are definitely trying to keep information from people. Guys, the science is clear. The geologic column did not form over millions of years. It had to form all at the same time, which is incredible evidence of the worldwide flood. Dr. Andrew, Dr. John, thank you guys for the work that you guys are doing here. Dr. Lyons, thank you. Dr. Uh, uh, Mortensen, thank you. I mean, this was an incredible opportunity to me and I'm just so incredibly grateful. Guys, it really was a worldwide, a global flood event. <sighs> I'd love to go into more, but I'm gonna have to cut us off right there. I'd encourage you, I got to go uh, just in uh, in December and go up to the Ark Encounter and film a little movie called Night at the Ark Encounter. Uh, you can watch that at creationtoday.org slash on demand. I would love to go into some more stuff. I'd love to talk about the fact that there are legends of the flood all around the world today. Uh, when Dwayne Gish wrote his book, there were 270. We've now discovered over 350 legends of the flood around the world. Hawaii has one, uh, a legend of this. Uh, the um, Chinese have a legend of this. The Toltec Indians have a legend of this. The ancient Babylonians have a legend of this. Uh, the Lewis and Clark, when they went across America, they said that the, the uh, Indians here in North America would celebrate, they would dance around a barrel-like structure that represented the ark that once saved mankind. Again, the Babylonians have a legend of this. More than 350 of them. I, I don't have time, but I'd love to tell you about Mount Ararat, how on a Turkish map, that area is called Nu'u and Gimshi which means Noah's big boat. It's there. Okay, a friend of mine, Jeremy Wiles, he's the guy that produced the Conquer series and Warpath and some amazing stuff. Um, he actually went over there and, and has done a lot of different filming uh, to try to create a movie about Noah's Ark. It's not been released yet, uh, but whenever he gets it done, it really is gonna be good. Check this out.
In 2004, I started on a journey that would change the rest of my life forever. And it started with this question, how far would I go to find the truth? With nothing more than a backpack, a cheap camera, a little bit of money, I set out to find Noah's Ark in Eastern Turkey and evidence of a biblical flood to see if the story was really true. You know, you grow up in church hearing about the story of Noah's Ark, but how many really believe it, literally? Even though I thought I believed in the biblical story, there were things in my belief system that went totally against it. So I had questions, like how did all the animals fit into the ark? Was it a local or a global flood? And where did all the water go? I didn't doubt the Bible's authenticity, but I had legitimate questions because I wanted to get to the truth. This journey has taken me literally around the world for the past eight years of my life. And it has led me to some very astonishing evidence. Finding Noah's Ark has really been my primary goal. I think one really fascinating point in the story of the Ark is that there are over 350 cultures around the world that have a story of a biblical flood. That journey took me to these different tribes around the world where I, I live with the tribes and I talked with the tribal leaders and they told me these stories that they had that they've carried down for centuries, generation after generation. And I went through China, this Chinese man in his late 80s, he actually sung the story of the biblical flood to me that they've passed down through generations. And I went into the jungle of the Philippines and met with a tribal leader. His 106-year-old grandfather told him the story of the flood, and he told me the story of the flood. I went to India and I met with a sadhu on the Ganges River, and he told me the, the story of a character called Nu, which in Hindi means Noah they corroborated with the biblical story of the flood. Searching for the truth sometimes comes at a cost, but it is worth it. In the same way that Noah's Ark was sealed with pitch, inside and out, from the flood, we're sealed with the cross, with, with the blood of Jesus Christ. It covers us, it covers us from from all condemnation, from all shame. He bore that on himself on the cross. He is our salvation. He's our spiritual ark. Guys, it's true. The more we look at science, the more it confirms scripture. Scripture is true about the creation, it's true about the flood, and it's true about the coming judgment of God. And there have been many, many, many skeptics who have uncovered lots and lots of great evidence to show God's word is true. One example, God says he's going to get the glory for everything. And he's certainly getting the glory for Sir James George Frazier's life. He wrote a three-volume set against Genesis. He was a prolific traveler, traveled worldwide. And in his volumes on Genesis, he happens to account all of the different places in the world where he hears of the legend of the flood. He puts all these in his book, trying to discredit Genesis. I don't have time to go into these. All I've got for you is the table of contents. Watch as these go by. This is the table of contents. And every one of these lines is his sections on the flood and the legends around the flood. Here we go, starting with page 107, all the way down, hundreds of pages, each filled with descriptions of legends around the world of a worldwide flood. Was it a worldwide flood? Was there really a worldwide flood? Absolutely. Scripture is clear and science is confirming it. We need to make sure and keep science in check. It is subject to scripture. It does not rule and reign over scripture because it's got a long history of being wrong. God's word is infallible and inspired. It's not wrong. If you're watching this and, and you've never truly seen the truth of Scripture that God created the heavens and the earth, 
that the flood really did destroy the world. And that's why we have the geologic column. And that's why we got all the animals and plants buried. That's why we have the fossil record. It's a record of death in the flood. It's a record of God's judgment. And you just need to know. In the last days, scoffers are going to be willingly ignorant of those three things, the creation, the flood, the coming judgment of God. There is going to be a judgment that's going to come. You and I are going to be judged by our creator. And if you think about it, you're really, really glad. You don't want somebody getting away with something. Nobody wants Hitler to get away with what he did. You want there to be a judge. You just got to realize he's going to judge you as well. And he's going to judge you not by your own standard, but by his. You haven't lived up to your own standard of perfection. You'll admit that, I'm sure. But he's going to hold you to his standard of perfection. His standard of perfection is righteousness. It's so high that he says, any lie you tell is worthy now of hellfire. He says, no thief will inherit the, the kingdom of God. He says, using his name to swear blasphemy, he's not going to hold you guiltless on judgment day. And who of us can say that we've never done these things? He's going to hold you to a standard that's much higher than what you want to be held to. The good news is, after you and I are both found guilty, he says, okay, I know you're guilty. I'm willing to pay the penalty for you. And if you want to accept the penalty, and if you want to accept my payment, all you have to do is repent and trust. You're trusting in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ how Christ was crucified, how he was buried, and three days later, how he rose from the grave. You say, how does that work? That's a great Bible study. Would love to go into that with you. I write about it pretty clearly on our website, creationtoday.org. If you go into the learn and click how to be saved, my friend Mark Spence and I share the entire gospel presentation with you. I think you'd really enjoy it. Guys, it really was a worldwide flood. The implications are huge. God's going to judge the world again, not with water. He gave us the rainbow to promise us never again. We've had lots of local floods, never had another worldwide one. He's going to judge this world with fire. I'd encourage you to get ready for that day of judgment. Guys, I want to thank you for being here. Partners, I see you guys on here. Thanks for hanging out with me. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, we don't typically keep social media on for the whole show, but I just wanted you guys to have all this information. Uh, if you ever want to partner with us just to help us reach the world, just go to creationtoday.org and partner with us. And uh, it, it, as a partner, you get access to everything we've ever done, past, present, and future. Uh, we'd love to see you just help us reach people on a monthly basis with the truth of God's Word and God's Word. Thanks for joining me, guys. God bless.